then it bothers me if we're going to be relying on this to be conclusive and saying that Ivan was wearing these jeans, then why isn't his DNA on that swab of the entire inside waistband? When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 19, The DNA. In 2011, Ivan was given an execution date. However, he got a stay of execution in order for more DNA testing to be conducted. The wheels of justice turned slowly, and the order for DNA testing was finally signed off on in 2017. The tests were conducted in 2018, and the hearing for the DA's office and Ivan's lawyer to address those findings happened in 2020. This episode, we'll be going over that hearing and breaking down those findings. You'll remember that hearing was in February of 2020, right before the release of season one of this podcast. And that's how I was able to interview Ivan over the phone, the interview you heard in episode two. That interview was from one day prior to this hearing, when Ivan was up in Collin County awaiting the hearing. Before we get started on your timeline, explain where you're at and how we're able to talk like this. Right now I'm at the Collin County Detention Facility in McKinney, Texas, and I'm using a regular telephone and calling you through uh, the minutes that I'm able to purchase from the commissary department. But how is this facility different than the security uh, at Polunsky on death row? As far as phone lines go, you know what I mean? Like, you've never been able to actually call out for how many years? I've not been able to use the phone for nearly 20 years. The Polanski unit does not have, um, they do not provide telephones. And this, so this is my, uh, this is my first time to use a phone in nearly 20 years. Wow. Okay, well, let's make use of it. What would be the first thing that, that comes to your mind? Why should people hear this? Well, they need to hear this because they need, they need to know that I, that I never harmed, I never killed, I did not do anything. And you already heard the rest of that interview with Ivan in episode two. We ran out of time that day, and as you'll remember, the remainder of Ivan's timeline had to be read by an actor. The day prior to my interview day with Ivan, Ivan had just been transported up to Collin County and was permitted to call out that day as well. As I was driving down the road, I received a call from an unknown Dallas number. Once I knew who it was, I quickly pulled over to the side of the road and clicked my recorder on. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, I'm just making sure I don't lose you. Okay. Um, all right, you ready? Uh, yep, go. What was, what was the last number you got from me? Did you get, did you get up to 36? I got 36. I think I'm missing 35. Okay, then at 34, what day did I end that on the statements? 
Ivan and I normally can only communicate through letters, and he is meticulous about numbering the letters so we can stay organized with all of the information. At this point, my letters are in the 90s. We only had about 10 minutes on this call, so we will be jumping around in this conversation to hit as many topics as we can over the phone. This may feel like a barrage of new information for you, but this will give you a sense of where we were at and where Ivan's head was at in February of 2020. Let me ask you this. Remember how we were missing the every other page from the Verizon reports? Ivan is referring to the fact that we're missing every other page of James Verizon's cell phone bill that show the days leading up to the murders. Right. Okay, well, on, on, the, on the ones that we do have, on that halogen number... Ivan has had his eye on this one number in particular on James' cell phone bill. It's a number from Harlingen, Texas. You'll remember that Ivan has said that the guy dressed as a Domino's pizza man told him he was from the Valley. And Harlingen, Texas is in the Valley. Ivan thinks this Harlingen number on James' cell phone bill is the so-called pizza man. And that this pizza man and James were in contact leading up to the murders. You'll remember that the pizza man told him that James owed them $250,000. And I know this Domino's pizza man story is hard for people to believe. And some people probably think this pizza man doesn't even exist. However, up until last episode, some people probably thought that Raina didn't really exist either. But Raina has been found. Now, can this pizza man be found? If we can find out exactly who that phone is registered to, and track down and make see if that guy has a, has a black Lincoln. You'll remember Ivan said the pizza man pulled off in a black box-style Lincoln. And what if, if we can tie that number, that cell phone number, to, to Carlos's or Anthony's records at that time, that same week or that same weekend, that would, that, would, that, would, that would be my idea. And just like you heard in the jailhouse tapes from 2000 and 2001, in 2020, Ivan still believed Carlos and Anthony may have been involved in some way. Before doing that, can we, should, should we at least get a court order to find out exactly who that phone number was registered to on James's cell phone records from the Valley? Th- that, my understanding is the same thing, is I, we need a subpoena to get that information. Or, uh, I mean, I guess a court order would do it, but seeing as how the DA is not seeming like they're going to be playing friendly with us for right now, uh, it'll, right. it'll have to come through Gina. Gina is Gina Bunn, Ivan's lawyer. And you'll remember in episode 16, Eichenberg and I had a meeting with DA investigator Dale Lundberg, which seemed to go well in person. But a few weeks later, essentially, we got shut down. Let me ask you this. Why do you, why do you think that one minute they were happy and open-minded and willing to hear you and then, and then put the brakes on? That's the million-dollar question. Um, did, Tammy, did Tammy share with you what my thoughts were? Uh, no. My thought is that I believe that he tracked down the audio tape between me and Wynn, and I think they heard it and they realized, okay, there's, there's a big problem here. One piece of evidence that Ivan has been asking for since his conviction is a recording from his first interview with Detective Wynn right after he was arrested, because Ivan says that will show what he's been saying all along and that this tape is vastly different than what Detective Wynn typed up after the interview. One element of the interview report that Detective Wynn typed up does jump out. Towards the end of the interview, it says, quote, Suspect Cantu 
had in his possession the key to the Corvette. He surrendered the key to the vehicle, unquote. So the first time I met with Ivan, I asked him, Ivan, what's this about you surrendering a key? He said, Matt, I never did that. If I really surrendered that key, don't you think that they would have used that against me at trial? Or there would be a record of that in evidence? I had to go back and check the trial transcripts and the case file. But sure enough, he was correct. It was never brought up at trial. That would be a major piece of evidence tying Ivan to the Corvette. And Ivan couldn't say someone planted that key because it would have been on his person, unlike James and Amy Kitchen's car keys found in his closet that Ivan does say were planted. This surrendered Corvette key would destroy Ivan's story about all the evidence being planted. But the fact is, there is no evidence of this key other than Wynn's report of Ivan's interview and this supposed surrendered key was never brought up again. So that would seem to indicate that Wynn's report was incorrect. Ivan never did surrender James' key. So that does beg the following questions. What else in Detective Wynn's report is incorrect? Why can't we get the audio recording of Ivan's interview with Detective Wynn? And why did we get shut down by the DA's office? I do have one more question for you. Sure. Tammy, I don't know if Tammy had got with you or not, but do you know on the affidavits, do we know when the watch was released to the family? No, there was no record of it being released to the family. Okay, well, didn't did she claim to have gone to the, to the Dallas Police Department to find for this item? Yes. Okay, well, but, but you're saying that they can't provide us with any record and we don't we don't know when that was? Correct. Okay, but... but as far as you know, was that, was that before my trial? Yes. It was before my trial? Yeah. You'll remember that all Gladys, James' mother, could tell us was that the cops told her that Mark Kitchen, Amy Kitchen's brother, at some point gave the Rolex back to the police. And Gladys picked up the Rolex shortly after at the police station. Well, we did get a little more information on that from Lundberg. Lundberg was assigned to look into the Rolex situation. So he interviewed Mark Kitchen. Mark has been unwilling to talk to me. Mark Kitchen told Lundberg that he found this Rolex when he was moving a dresser at James and Amy Kay's house. Mark said he was at the house with two detectives and he turned it over to them. Mark remembered it being a black officer and a Hispanic officer, but he couldn't remember which one he handed it to. I would assume these officers were Detective Wynn, the lead homicide detective on the case, who is black, and Detective Carollo, Hispanic. So, as we know, there's no record of this Rolex being turned in, but I do believe I found the date this encounter likely happened. In the case files, there's a report that says on November 25th, 2000, three weeks after the murders, Detective Wynn and Officer Carollo met Mark Kitchen at the residence. Mark Kitchen told them the locks had been changed on the doors, so presumably he had the new keys. The detectives were there checking if the Mercedes key found in Ivan's closet worked for Amy Kitchen's Mercedes, which it did. Now, again, it says nothing about the Rolex on this report, but there's no other report with these three individuals at the residence together and there would be no reason for these three individuals to all be back at the residence months after the murders, and definitely not after the trial. 
So I figured this is when Mark handed over the Rolex, November 25th, 2000. And Gladys would have likely picked it up a day or so later. With him being the lead detective, his, one of his partners should have at least told him, hey, uh, that, hey that, was, that was not stolen, it was not missing, therefore don't, don't run with it and continue as if you are. Or as if it did occur when it did. You see what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right, so they, they, knew, they knew before and during the trial that that watch was never stolen and it was not missing. But yet, they, uh, they made it seem as if it was. My, my goodness, the prosecutor used it in the, the opening statement. Did, did, you, did you notice that any time that she said something bad about me, and they, they were trying to press her on it and say, well, where's this or where's that? Well, either it went out the window or it went in some dumpster. There was anything bad that had to relate to an item. She couldn't, she, she didn't have access to it or she, or she couldn't give it to them. So therefore, her answer for everything was, well, it, it was thrown away on the highway or it was thrown away in the trash or this dumpster over here. Did you, do, you, do you realize that? I had realized that. It is an interesting point to think about. I finally got on the horn with Geller and High. Those were Ivan's trial attorneys. I think that, honestly, they were both, they both thought you did it. Um, it, it sounds like Geller, I pressed Geller on. So did, did Ivan ever tell you, uh, confess that he did it? You'll remember that after the trial, Ivan filed an ineffective counsel claim. Well, that terminated the attorney-client privilege. And Matt Geller, Ivan's lead counsel, stated in an affidavit that Ivan confessed to him. So I wanted to see what Geller and High had to say about that. I pressed Geller on, so did did Ivan ever tell you, uh, confess that he did it? And he said, I don't think so. And then he says, yeah, maybe he did, maybe he did in front of a priest when you were, him and you were with a priest. The problem was- we, we, we were never with a priest and he was adamant. He hammered it home on his affidavits. When he, when we filed, when we filed ineffective assistance of counsel on him, then, then to justify not doing anything for me and to justify not helping me, that was his answer for everything. That was his answer for everything to justify not doing anything on his case to help me. When I went, when, when Gina talked to Don and she asked him that, he, he adamantly said, hey, Ivan, Ivan continuously stood by, stood by his innocence. He reiterated innocence the whole time. I mean, my goodness, and we had an ex parte hearing for me to tell the judge that, they, that these gentlemen were fighting for me. And there was information on our defense table that they could have used that they weren't that they were not using to help me. Don, Don High, he, he knows that. And so if I uh, was Geller being my attorney, that never, nothing like that ever happened, but had something like that happened, they would have wrote it down in the file and he would have told he would have told Mr. High. And this is where the supposed confession does get even more interesting. That's what I brought up to High. Did Ivan ever say anything like that to you? No, he did not. Well, are you aware that Geller said that he did say something like that to him? And no, he did not. But I said, but so if that had happened, wouldn't he have told you that? And he said, well, and you know, I, I don't know if he was just trying to squirm around but he was like you know that's something that I never ask my clients one way or another to be honest I don't want to know blah 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 so to answer your question he was trying to say it's not protocol necessarily for one lawyer to tell the other lawyer again that sounds pretty are you fishy are you kidding so basically he danced around it that was his way of dancing around it but now when they both when they both got a court order to tell the truth Don, Don told the truth he did not put it in his affidavits 
but Geller lied, and he put that in his to justify not, not helping me or lifting a finger on this case. To be clear, while Geller stated in his affidavit that Ivan confessed to him, in Don Ha's affidavit, Don Ha was co-counsel, he never said anything about a confession. And he told me over the phone he did not remember Ivan ever confessing or Geller ever telling him that Ivan confessed. They, uh, they took the state's case at face value. They didn't care to look into anything, and that's, that's why we're here today. And where Ivan was two days after this phone call was back in the courtroom in Collin County. This is from the transcripts of that hearing on February 13th, 2020. It has been slightly edited for time, and it's being read by actors. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The State of Texas versus Ivan Cantu, 380-800-4701. That was Judge Benjamin Smith. Attorneys, please state your name for the record. Gina Bunn for Ivan Cantu. Amy Murphy for the State of Texas. Would counsel like to make argument based on the reports and any requested findings? The state is asking for you to find the test results from SWIFTS and UNT not favorable. That was Amy Murphy with the district attorney's office. SWIFT's reports refer to the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences at Dallas, and the UNT report refers to the UNT Center for Human Identification out of Fort Worth. In other words, it is not reasonably probable that he would not have been convicted had these DNA test results been available at trial. DNA testing conducted at trial established that James Mosqueda's DNA was on the socks and the jeans found in Cantu's kitchen trash can, and Amy Kitchen's DNA was found on the socks found in the trash can. Post-conviction, Cantu asked for DNA testing of the socks and the jeans to determine who wore those items as well as fingernail clippings and hair evidence. Neither the fingernails nor the hair evidence have established anything dispositive in this case. And DNA testing of the bands of the jeans and socks have not definitively established who wore them. It's important to note that the district attorney stated that, quote, DNA testing of the bands of the jeans and socks have not definitively established who wore them, unquote, because some numbers that you'll hear later will be surprising. Without a definitive showing in any DNA test results that clearly exculpate Cantu, these test results are not favorable. 
But at this time, we would like the findings entered on the test results that are presented to this court today. Ms. Bunn? Yes, Your Honor. The DNA testing that was admitted at trial, the state's argument basically was that the jeans and socks recovered in Mr. Cantu's apartment matched the DNA of the two victims, the deceased in this case. However, it was Mr. Cantu's position at trial and has remained throughout these post-conviction proceedings that those genes were not his. That they were planted in his apartment after he had already left town. And there's other evidence to suggest that as well. And that's why we saw this DNA testing that wasn't done at the time of trial to actually support Mr. Cantu's position all along that those were not his clothes. That was not his clothing. And in fact, though the state argues the testing we have is not dispositive, it does show the sample from the genes that Mr. Cantu was actually excluded as a contributor on one of the samples from the genes. It's also important to note that not only could the testing not definitively establish who wore them, but Ivan was actually excluded as a contributor in one of the samples taken from the genes. And even more interesting... And it actually is an unknown contributor, someone who it doesn't match the DNA of either of the victims either. So we've got an unknown sample here. The other sample from the genes, though Ivan couldn't be excluded as the contributor, again, there is another unknown contributor to the sample that again supports Mr. Cantu's statement all along that those were not his genes. And that they were planted in his apartment and were obviously used as a centerpiece of the state's case against him at his trial. Similarly, there is no, nothing from the socks that inculpates Mr. Cantu as well. So basically, it is our argument that this post-conviction DNA testing does support our position all along, at time of trial and since, and that the court should look at this in the context of the entire trial, that there was other evidence indicating that there was someone, someone that had access to Ivan's apartment after he and his girlfriend left the state. It was indicated by phone records that were admitted at trial that show an outgoing call after the police had gone in and done a protective sweep of the house and before police found these items in Mr. Cantu's apartment. So we would, the findings themselves that lay out the specific findings of the DNA testing, we don't dispute those. But the final finding, that there is not a reasonable probability from this that the jury would have had a different result. We do definitely object to that. And we believe that the findings should be that this DNA testing actually, if these results had been available during the trial of the offense, that there is a reasonable probability that the jury would not have convicted Mr. Cantu. How much time does each side need to submit proposed findings? I have proposed findings ready to file right now. Would you like to submit proposed findings? I can, Your Honor. I don't have any prepared, but again, my position on these is the sub-findings themselves we don't have a problem with. It's the ultimate conclusion, the ultimate finding of no reasonable probability we object to, and we would have a different proposed finding on that. If that's the only difference in your proposed findings, then if I agree with your position, I'll just simply change the change that aspect of the state's proposed findings. That would be fine with me, Your Honor. I would like to let the record reflect that Mr. Cantu is present in the court for this hearing. Thank you. Matter will be under advisement. And that's how the hearing went. 
It was short. And shortly after this hearing, Ivan was whisked back to the Polinsky death row unit, where he waited for 30 days on the judge's ruling. We'll get to the ruling shortly, but since the specifics of the DNA findings were not discussed or presented during the hearing, I wanted to interview a DNA expert to break down those test results for us because some of those findings are quite significant. My name is Angela Ross, and I'm currently an independent DNA expert. I'm a consultant, and what I do now is I assist defense attorneys in understanding the DNA reports that are going to be presented in trial. I assist them in asking the appropriate questions when the DNA analyst is testifying so that the jury, um, or if it's just a judge trial, so that the all the information can come out so that the jury and the judge can make the right decision and know that they have all of the information presented when it's related to the DNA evidence. Let's start out with what DNA testing was performed and what items were they testing and what were they testing for? Sure. So some of the evidence that was resubmitted to the laboratory to be analyzed was the fingernail clippings from James Mosqueda, left and right hand. And Amy Kay's fingernail clippings, right and left. Um, hair from the format of the vehicle. Je- the jeans were resubmitted and the socks were resubmitted. And then also the reference samples from, and a reference sample is just a known DNA sample from an individual. And that's the reference sample from James Mosqueda, Ivan Cantu, and Amy Betcher, and Amy Kitchen also. Yeah, so to be yes. clear, that they were, all of those items, they were they were testing for four people's DNA, essentially. James, Amy Kitchen, Amy Betcher, and Ivan, is that correct? That's correct. They Those reference samples were submitted to be compared to the results to, for interpretation. I asked Angela to go through the findings, least compelling to most compelling. So I'm going to start off just with the hair that was collected from the vehicle, the floor mat, On the floor mat in James Corvette, there apparently was a long reddish hair, which wouldn't seem to belong to either Amy, as they were both blonde. So Ivan wanted to know who this red hair belonged to. Because you'll remember, Ivan has said he returned the Corvette back to James and Amy's house around 6.30 a.m. So Ivan says he's not the one that left it parked outside his apartment. Someone else must have moved it there after they left for Arkansas. You'll also remember that James Corvette hit a toll tag at 11.15 a.m., the morning of November 4th, a time that Amy Betcher did not have on her timeline for Ivan or her being in that Corvette. And that laboratory actually did not generate a result. There just may not have been enough DNA to be able to generate a DNA profile. Um, Hairs do degrade. They don't have a whole lot of mitochondria in them, and there just may not have been enough of a hair fragment in order to generate a DNA profile. So there's absolutely no information to be gained from that hair analysis. Next, we moved on to Amy Kitchen's fingernail clippings. Looking at the reference at these samples that were analyzed compared to Amy Kitchen, there is no foreign DNA profile under there under her nails. It's only her. Ivan is excluded from being present on her fingernails. Now, James' fingernails. So they did analysis on the left and right hand fingernail clippings of James Mosqueda, and Mm -hmm. those DNA profiles are also incomplete. They're just a partial DNA profile, but 
the DNA that is found is still consistent with James Mosqueda. So, and there's no foreign DNA um, that's unidentified on his samples. So no information was gained from the hair or fingernails, other than there was no foreign DNA under James or Amy Kay's fingernails. And before we get into the thick of it with the socks and jeans. Now, what I want to explain is that the laboratory is looking at 23 locations on our chromosomes to generate a DNA profile. Two locations out of the 23 specify male or female. So there's 21 locations that we're looking at that have just a series of numbers that we're looking at create your DNA profile. So for this chart of the DNA findings that Angela will be referencing, I'm not able to post this chart, but you can go to our social media pages to see example charts. If you're just listening, I'll try to paint the picture for you. Imagine a chart or like an Excel document that has 10 columns going up and down and 23 rows going across. At the top of the columns, you'll have the headings James Mosqueda's DNA, Amy Kitchen's DNA, Amy Betcher's DNA, and Ivan Cantu's DNA. Those are four separate columns. And then in the additional six columns, you have sample from James Mosqueda's fingernail clippings, right and left, and then you have two different samples taken from the jeans and three different samples taken from the socks. So those are all at the top of each column. And then in the 23 rows are the DNA profiles for the four individuals and the DNA profiles found on the evidence. And in each box is just one or two digits called alleles, plus your two sex chromosome locations make up your 23 like 23andMe. So if you go down Ivan's column, for instance, you might have a, a box with a 6-7, then going down, the next one it might be an 11-13, and so on. Just random numbers go down these columns. Same deal for the evidence columns. So Angela is looking at the evidence column, say, on the sock, and if there's a 6 and a 7 in that row, she's looking at who among James, Ivan, Amy, and Amy also have a 6-7 in their row. The matching isn't hard, but the interpretation of that matching is where an expert like Angela comes in. You look down this chart and you see James Mosqueda, Ivan Cantu, Amy Betcher, Amy Kitchen. Those are their, D- those are their reference samples. Those are their DNA profiles. If you look at James Mosqueda's DNA profile at that location and you look at Ivan's DNA at that location, they actually share the same numbers. They are both a six and a seven, which is not uncommon. It's a, I thought they were cousins, isn't that correct? That is correct. In fact, in multiple boxes in the chart, James and Ivan have the same two digits. And in some boxes, they share just one digit. So James might have an 11 and 13 and Ivan has an 11 and 14. So, if there's just an 11 in that row for evidence, and there's no 13 or 14, does that point to Ivan or James? That's when things become uncertain, and that will be an upcoming issue. There could be similarities between random strangers also, but it doesn't surprise me when you're dealing with cousins that there are some similarities. So, when you look at the DNA profile you can determine and go down, this is really all a DNA 
scientist does is they look at these numbers and see what's in common with the individuals. But if there's not enough information, let's these all these NRs that are on this chart, those are no results. So if there's no digits in that box on the chart, there's either an NR for no result or an INC for inconclusive. And there are quite a few NRs or INCs for the evidence columns. And here, Angela's looking at a sample from the SOX. So in this particular sample, we have a mixture of at least three individuals, but we're missing a lot of the DNA profile. We have mixtures at different locations. We have individuals that share DNA. So ultimately, I would have looked at this DNA profile and would have said no conclusion. There's just too many numbers to um, what? How would you? How would you? Too many numbers at too few locations, and too much of it is incomplete. Okay. So Angela says no conclusion can be drawn from the socks. The final item that was tested was the genes, and there were two different samples tested from the genes. This is where it gets interesting. So the next sample I'd actually like to talk about is going to be the sample from the genes, sample T4. Like I said, there's two samples for the genes. One is labeled T4 and one is labeled T5. And Angela will go over the difference. T4 was a swabbing collected from the entire inside waistband of the genes. When you look at that DNA profile of that particular column, you will see that it's no result at pretty much every location except for one. Well, two, there's an X listed, and there's an INC being inconclusive, and then there's an eight in parentheses. So this is a swabbing of the waistband that was performed to try to identify the wearer of the waistband. So if an individual is wearing their clothing, that clothing is in constant contact with their skin. So there are skin cells that are transferring off nonstop the entire time the individual is wearing it. But there is no DNA profile that was generated from that swabbing. When I was training in the laboratory, one of the things I did was that I actually took laundered clothing and brought it to the, and I cut samples from laundered clothing of my own clothing and did DNA on it. I even took cuttings of it. And you really couldn't get a lot. I just took swabbings of the neck. Let's say my husband wore a shirt mowing the grass and then I'm, I washed it and swabbed it. And laundering does remove a lot of clothes, a lot of the DNA. It doesn't remove it all by no means, but this particular sample does not have a DNA profile that was obtained from it. But my one of my big concerns is the way it was written in the report. And so the way it was presented in the post-conviction information, you know, the results from this is they actually still generate a statistic with it. Now, they're excluding Ivan from it, but you do not draw a conclusion off of one number. Your DNA profile could have that one eight at that one location. Right. No conclusion should ever be drawn off of one number. And what was that statistic? 79 and 100 which is an extremely low statistic. I mean, 79 potential individuals could have that one number out of 100. 
So about 80% of people are going to have that one number. Yeah. That's what they're saying. But it did exclude Ivan. It did exclude Ivan. Yes, it did. So does that indicate to you that Ivan was wearing those jeans or not wearing those jeans? In a way, it indicates to me that the jeans were clean. <laughs> it means that nobody was wearing it, There's no DNA profile. They're not, it's not James, because I know we're in the podcast, you know, earlier it's mentioned of, as the size discrepancy between the two individuals, that these genes are not Ivan's size. So what this indicates to me is no one was wearing the genes. Wow. <laughs> you know, it, it is obviously a theory that these genes were planted. That's what Ivan has said. Um, Planted by who? We don't know. Let's just say, is it possible that anyone was wearing these jeans? Well, not based off that result, but we do need to look at the last sample. The final sample is the sample from the jeans. It is a cutting of the waistband near the tag of the jeans. They removed a small section. So this particular sample does come up with a mixture of DNA um, and some of those DNA, uh, some of that profile is consistent with Ivan. We do also see that it is a mixture. A mixture, Angela explained, is having at least three alleles, three digits in a box since individuals only have two alleles in one location. If there is three or four alleles found in that location of the evidence, you know you have more than one person's DNA present. Five alleles indicates at least three individuals' DNA, and so on. There's a mixture of at least two individuals, and we do see some consistencies with Ivan's DNA profile. And you can look at it yourself with me, looking at that exact, looking at the chart. They did try, the laboratory did try to identify whether or not somebody was a major contributor versus a minor contributor. So this sample gets even more complex because the column is split in two columns, a major contributor column and a minor contributor column. There's a six and a seven in the major column on this particular row. And then there's an eight in the minor column. And I know this gets dense, especially without visual aids. We're going to be moving away from this chart very shortly and talking in more generalities. But it is important to hear a little bit of this breakdown. So on that one, we see the six and the seven. The six and the seven are a major contributor, but then there's a minor contributor, which is an eight, which is not consistent with anybody, which is the same eight that was in the sock. This eight represents the unknown contributor that Gina, Ivan's lawyer, spoke of. The eight in this location matches none of the four. So we have this eight that's showing up. Now, did it get there from being handled during trial from somebody? I don't know. Did it come get there from somebody else handling it and planting it? We don't know. We don't know about any other samples on the genes. When you keep going down, you can look and see some of the consistencies with Ivan. And then we still have other consistencies with like if you look at the TPOX, T-P-O-X, mm-hmm. it's an 8 and an 11, 12. But then Amy has, both Amy's have an 8 there and so does James. 
So we have no idea who could have contributed that eight. Um, and then you can keep coming down and you can see some consistencies with Ivan and then you can see some consistencies with the other individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do come down to the fifth from last row, there's also a 913 there and nobody can attribute that. We are dealing with some consistencies with Ivan, but then some of those consistencies are shared with James, like that 6-7 at the top at the 1. The location that I'm talking about now, this D16S539, I apologize for jumping around, sure. but that 11-12 is also the same as James. So to try to say that this is Ivan's and not some other mixtures of other individuals, I think it's misleading. I know they gave a statistic in their report. I don't know what numbers they use for their statistic. But again, on this one, I would have considered this also inconclusive. But listen to the number the lab came up with on this one. Okay, well, let's back up because this has been the sample that, you know, I've looked at. Tammy and and looked at Sylvia and looked at Ivan and we're just all like, this does not look good for you, Ivan. Because this T5 sample, it says out of the four, it says that James is excluded, Amy Vetcher is excluded, Amy Kitchen is excluded, and Ivan is one in 825,000. Right. actually an extremely low statistic (laughs) because if you look even in the when it was reported in the first trial that the DNA profiles that were the blood the assumed blood samples that were consistent with James and with Amy on the earlier samples James Mosqueda's DNA on the genes was 1 in 88.7 billion So one in 825,000 is actually not a strong statistic. So but for the layperson, I'm seeing that and I'm, I'm thinking one in 825,000 people have this DNA profile. So that says to me almost like one in a million almost. On paper, it looks like one in a million people have this, this DNA profile. Ivan, this points to you, but you're saying that's not correct. I'm saying it should be inconclusive. I'm not saying he's definitely, I'm not saying he's excluded. I'm just saying it should be inconclusive because of the fact that we, it is a mixture. We do know we have some numbers that James and Ivan share. We do have some numbers that nobody can account for. And I don't have the statistics worksheet to see how the laboratory actually generated the stat. So did they include the locations where there's a mixture or did they, did they include the entire DNA profile? I don't know what they did, but when I look at this DNA profile, knowing that they're related, knowing that there are some shared numbers between the individuals and knowing that there's areas that are not attributed to Ivan, 
I would feel more comfortable with this sample being an inconclusive or an inconclusive sample. No conclusion can be drawn. I'm not saying Ivan is excluded. I'm just saying it should be inconclusive. I see. Well, now I find it odd that, like you're saying, a lot of these numbers, um, James and Ivan have very similar numbers, but they are cousins. And and on the gene sample, a lot of these numbers, they're also James numbers. So I'm confused on how James was completely excluded when a lot of these numbers come back to James as well. Um, and then somehow, you know, you get the one in 825,000 for Ivan. Exactly. If we exclude where Ivan and James share, there's also areas where Ivan and Amy Betcher share. And not considering the fact that the sample right before it, the swabbing, has no DNA, basically, I think that's misleading. I think if somebody was wearing these jeans, now how was this DNA there? I don't know. I don't know how this DNA was, was deposited there. Was it even deposited there during the trial? I don't know. I don't know if one person happened to touch that one area before it got resubmitted. This evidence was unsealed prior to going back to the to the laboratory for being examined. So we don't know if anybody opened up that bag at any point and handled this evidence. Um, but then it bothers me if we're going to be relying on this to be conclusive and saying that Ivan was wearing these jeans, then why isn't his DNA on that swab of the entire inside waistband. Because he goes there and he's shooting, then he's driving back and forth, and then he, you know, he's doing a lot of movement. Everybody sloughs DNA at a different rate, so there's no way to determine for sure if he would have, the wearer would have guaranteed to have left their DNA inside. It's just an assumption that all analysts have that that's the point that's gonna come in contact with the body the most. But we have all of these samples that supposedly he, all these these items, these, the socks and the jeans that supposedly he wore. And there's really nothing, there, there isn't conclusive results that say, yes, I'm definitely sure that Ivan was wearing this. I'm not sure if, if anybody was wearing them it, it's, or for any extended period of time. And so, yeah. I mean, I guess, could you, for the listeners, like, what is, so this is one in 825,000, and you're saying that's, would you say that's just not compelling? That's, I mean, what is compelling? Obviously, you said that James is, that the, the ratio of James's DNA percentage was like one in 88 billion, but where, what what is a number at trial that that you're like, okay, that, that test Everybody feels comfortable that that is this person's DNA. What what does it need to be? It's a good question. <laughs> there, there is no like. Uh... No, there's no one. One in a million is not enough. I would. I mean, I would want to be one in a billion. Really, what I need to look at, and what I would need to know, and what the everybody needs to know is. What numbers did they use to generate this statistic? Did they pick and choose the numbers that were only consistent with Ivan? Or did they ignore the locations that had the mixtures and were inconclusive 
and just pick the ones that were consistent with Ivan, but only consistent with Ivan. Well, in your estimation, don't you think that they would have had to? To do it properly, and I'm not putting anything on the lab at all because a lot of things have evolved statistically so I'm not saying I'm not at all saying that they did anything wrong I just think for me as the as an expert to evaluate it to be able to agree with that statistic I would have to look at how they calculated that statistic so what report would we ask for from the lab to be able to find out how they made that determination there would be a data sheet at the laboratory that was used to generate the statistic and it would tell me what numbers from this DNA profile that they entered to determine this this statistic. Well, and does INC mean inconclusive or does that, what does that mean? Yes, it means inconclusive. Right. And what does NR mean? No result. Right. So in in this, this uh, T5, what they said was the most you know, they were certainly saying was the most compelling and matched Ivan one to eight hundred and twenty-five thousand. If you just go down the list, there's twenty-three rows. Out of the twenty-three, you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Sixteen out of the twenty-three are either inconclusive or no result. That's right. That seems like a big number of inconclusive or no result to be able to to say that. That and that that is why when I I fully agree with that, and that is why when I looked at that DNA profile as I see it in this report, I don't feel comfortable drawing a conclusion based off of it. I would I feel more comfortable saying it's inconclusive. Because that was such a compelling statistic, and one that could sway public opinion one way or another about Ivan's guilt or innocence, I felt it necessary to belabor that point. While that 1 in 825,000 statistic seems compelling to the general public, to an expert like Angela, and even the DA, there's just not much there, especially now that you've heard how many inconclusives, no results, and mixtures are involved in that DNA evidence profile. But what about the unknown contributor? Those numbers that showed up that couldn't be attributed to James, Ivan, or either Amy. But is there enough information in these samples to determine if we were to get find the right person? Is there enough information? Being mixtures at low concentrations, it's, it's possible that you would never be able to identify the person. So, to answer your question, no. So after 20 years, it seems DNA is not going to change the trajectory of this case. And one month after the DNA hearing, the court came back with this ruling. After examining the results from the DNA testing conducted in this case, under Article 64.03, this court finds that had these results been available during the trial of the offense, it is not reasonably probable that Cantu would not have been convicted, unquote. I wanted to get Angela's take on the ruling. If th these DNA findings were presented the way they 
are looking to you right now, would that have changed Ivan's conviction or not? And I do feel that the inconclusive results possibly alone, this is just strictly speaking on the DNA alone, could have possibly introduced some level of doubt um, for the jurors to consider when they're when they were still considering the other DNA evidence. But I think it is possible that a jury, um, knowing that it was not conclusive that he was wearing these socks and these jeans that were found in his home, they could have possibly come up with reasonable doubt. I think we can all agree, if Ivan's DNA was found to be definitively present on the genes, that would be a big deal. Well, I think it can be argued that the antithesis should also be true. Ivan's DNA was found to be definitively not present on the first sample taken from the genes. That should be a big deal, and one that Ivan's lawyer said at the hearing supports Ivan's claim all along that these genes were planted. Now I know Ivan cannot be excluded from the second sample taken from the genes. But as you heard from Angela and the DA, this sample could not definitively establish who wore them. So looking at those two samples together, that should raise some eyebrows. And that does add another piece of evidence to the mounting pile of reasonable doubt, especially... Since we know that Ivan doesn't wear that size, that it's, they're not his jeans, that he wasn't wearing every week, you know, for three months before. You know, I'm saying like my DNA is probably in my clothing because I wear them all the time. Um, But these weren't Ivan's pants, right? I mean, he couldn't wear this size. As you heard from the very first episode, Ivan did not wear 34 or 32 size jeans. These jeans were too big for Ivan. Now, I know there's been some debate online about how much Ivan did really weigh at the time of his arrest. Because if you Google Ivan's weight now in prison, it says 176 pounds. But at the time of Ivan's arrest, when Ivan was allegedly wearing these jeans, Ivan was 140 pounds. There are two different offense reports that clearly say Ivan was 5'7", 140 pounds. You can see these reports on our social media pages. And in addition to that, you've heard a lot about Bobbitt before, Ivan's old roommate in 2000. Well, this is a written and signed affidavit from Bobbitt. I met Ivan Cantu the summer of 2000. Ivan and I were roommates for about two months. At that time, I wore a 3230 in jeans. During the time we lived together, I tried to put on and wear a pair of Ivan's jeans. Ivan's jeans would not fit me. They were too small and I could not get into his jeans. Ivan had a thinner waist and was a few inches shorter than me. My best estimate would be that Ivan wore a 3030 or a 3028. Ivan moved out of my apartment around September of 2000, less than two months before the murders. I never knew Ivan to wear baggy jeans. We both wore normal fitting jeans. 
Also, I never saw Ivan with a gun or thought he owned a gun. I hereby state that the information above is true to the best of my knowledge. I also confirm that the information here is both accurate and complete, and relevant information has not been omitted. That's a signed affidavit from Bobbitt. That is evidence able to be used in a court of law. A guy 5'7", 140 pounds, who does not wear baggy jeans, does not wear 34-32s. He wears right around 30-30s, like Ivan has said all along. And you'll remember how they matched those jeans to Ivan during the trial. Detective Wynn testified that after finding the jeans in the trash can, he found the same size and same brand jeans hanging in his closet. But you'll also remember, no picture was taken of that second pair of jeans, nor were they ever taken into evidence. So we would just have to take the detective's word for it. The same detective that had no record of the Rolex being located. The same detective that wrote up in a report that Ivan surrendered James Corvette key, which there's no record of and it was never brought up again. And the same lead homicide detective that did not submit all the case files pre-trial and had to hand over a stack of evidence two to three inches thick during the trial. So, was that second pair of 34, 32 Arizona brand jeans really hanging in Ivan's closet? Would you bet your life on that? Now, Would you bet Ivan's life on that? If Ivan didn't wear this size jeans, and Ivan's DNA isn't definitively established on these jeans, where did these jeans come from? Well, actually we know. These jeans were not available in stores. These jeans could have only come from one place, Alf's Manufacturing, where the wife of Chris Head worked. Back then, where were you working? Uh, it, I think it came up uh, in the It notes. was probably Alf's Manufacturing, yes. And I had samples, but I probably gave a couple of pairs out, but... I can guarantee I never gave James and Squeda, Amy, and or Ivan any. Did I ever give my friends jeans? I can 100% tell you, yes, I did. Now, who I gave jeans to, can't really recall, but I can honestly admit 100%. It wasn't Anthony Fonseca. It wasn't anybody in that circle that I would recall because you're talking about, you know, Arizona jeans, which is the J.C. Penney's brand. And I can tell you that select group of people wouldn't be caught dead in these jeans. Next time on Cousins by Blood. If you're a fan of the podcast, please give a five-star rating on iTunes. To find out more about the case and to see pictures, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cousins by Blood Podcast. If you have any information about this case, you can email me at cousinsbybloodpodcast at gmail.com. 
Special thanks to Angela Ross. The Judge, read by Robert Weinheimer. The DA, read by Catherine Ganimi Leach. And Ivan's Lawyer, read by Bethany Reiser. Mixing and Mastering by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned.